You are listening to Wait a Minute with Beth and Jessica, episode 51. I'm Jessica Pearson, certified life coach. And I'm Beth Barnett-Babel, an integrative nutrition therapist. We'd love to invite you to join us inside Foundations. This is the course for learning how to eat normal, meaning we aren't going to do any more weird diets and we're also not living in total effort mode. Learn how to understand your body and mind and how to treat them inside our interactive course, Foundations. There is no other course like this on the planet that offers the combination of nutrition and mindset with one-on-one connection at a price point that is so amazing. So go check it out today and join pathnutrition.com backslash foundations. We keep our eyes peeled for things in the media or in real life that come from diet culture or that perpetuate diet culture in some way. These are often the subtle ways it creeps in, which is why we are shining a light on it and sharing it with you. Okay, today we are talking about the ads about swimsuits. And the reason why (laughs) is because I need a new bathing suit this summer and I'm on a quest to find a bathing suit that is not super high-waisted, Brazilian, up my rear end, or some other weirdness along the lines. I just want a normal bathing suit and they are very hard to find. And then when you add Instagram ads to my algorithm, because I have looked at bathing suits, it is mania out there. And it is really frustrating because it is so obvious that they're airbrushed and how they're standing, even when they are quote unquote normal body looking, you can tell that they are standing in really weird ways to make their body look like a certain way. And so it's just, it's like, this is why people hate bathing suit shopping because there's nobody normal looking in these ads at all. And if there is, it's like one or two brands here and there. And they're like of some style that I don't like because, you know, young people. <laughs> so what do you, do you, you see? You are ads? still young. I, let's just let's not put you in the old person <laughs> category. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it, it's just one of those ever challenging things of, I feel like swimsuit fashion is just not as inclusive. It's becoming it's more size inclusive, but even that, I listened to a podcast about size inclusivity and fashion and how it's been a challenge because, you know, we talk about dressing yourself at any size and okay. that's, that seems to be such a big challenge for a lot of people because they don't want to dress themselves at their size. So the demand for purchasing all inclusive sizing is still not enough to keep yeah. some of these people in business. And so they're just not able to provide all the sizes because they're not selling. And, you know, with swimsuits, it's just like, yeah, sex sells and let's just put out the sexiest photos and everybody in their hot bikinis looking hot. But I'm like, I'm a 42-year-old mom. <laughs> like, I, I know. Just, I want to be cute, but I also like don't want to bend over and have my titties pop out at the pool, you know? So. Well, even <laughs> the ones that are geared for our age group, the forty, the 40s moms, those ads are also of women that look like if they bear children, they don't look like most people that post baby bodies. They have that gene type where their body looks a particular way that is continued in, in these ads. And so it's just as yeah. like that woman looks older and that bathing suit doesn't look so fuddy duddy on her. But if I put it on me, I'm going to look like a 90 year old woman. It's just like, it's such a weird thing. It's like, why can't there be a balance? And also, can we really please stop with the, like even like really cute bathing suits that would be great for being in my forties. There's no, butt. like, I don't want my butt hanging out of my bathing suit. Like I just, I, I don't want to adopt the fashion. I just, I don't, I, I like it to be covered 
I do. So can we please bring those back without them being or give us options, right? It's just options. If you want that, that's fine. It should just be like, here's the range of coverage and you get to choose in any fabric. Like I want the company that's like, choose your fabric and then choose your shape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the shape yeah. of your body, like the shape of the suit, not the shape of your body, but choose like what type of bottom do you want? What type of top? And then it just like makes it for you. That's my fantasy that would be because sometimes amazing. you don't find the right fabric or the right, you know, colors or whatever in the shape that you want. And yeah. I do get ads. I actually get ads for try-ons. Like these are probably plus size influencers and they're trying on bathing suits so I think maybe our algorithms are different because I actually have not seen the ad that you shared with me, which is interesting. That's the primary, that ad I sent you. Yeah. Uh, that lady's Brazilian type buttocks was, it's the standard. I mean, summer, I do get ads for somersault and those are, have lots of normal, wide variety of bodies. So like totally normalizing that there's so many different body shapes. I get those ads. But it'll be like one of the models has a pretty varied thing. And then every, and then the rest of the five or so pictures in the carousel will be of somebody that's very thin. So you'll get one range of a different body type and then you get the rest of them. But the problem is I don't really like somersault bathing suits because they look like they're well-made. But whenever I get one, I'm like, this is really flimsy and my boobs are falling out. Yeah. So maybe, um, maybe we should get into the swimsuit industry. <laughs> let's just pick mm-hmm. her up. Yeah, let's do that. So anyways, it just, it's like, it's high-waisted 40s style, whatever that style that the high waistedness is in, or your butt is hanging out. And that appears to be the options. And I would like different options. That's not a tankini. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good luck to you. <laughs> if anybody has any brands that they like, send them to us. I yeah. got a cute one from Nordstrom, but my it's a one piece, but it's also low V cut. I don't mind a low V cut. The problem is finding a low V cut that is finding Offer, having enough tush support. yeah either support or tush but most of the v cuts i found i don't know i have one on the way and i'm hoping crossing Maybe fingers you should just, uh, show us your butt <laughs> i don't know i just i don't it's like the same reason why i don't like to wear thongs i know there's too much information i don't want to feel like i have fabric up my ass yeah I that's like really it and i feel watching. like those look like you will feel like you want to pick your rear end all day, especially like, yeah. you know, sur- wake surfing and being out of the lake and stuff. I really just don't want to pick my, my, my butt. Yeah. I was going to ask what you wake surf in. Do you wear just regular bathing suit or do you wear shorts? Well, I mostly wear, I'm on this quest because my bottoms have worn out, but I wear bathing suit bottom. I wear like a two piece and then I wear shorts over them because sometimes it feels like no matter what you wear, you might lose your bottoms depending on how busy it is is out there. (laughs) So I have to wear, I wear shorts. I know a lot of people don't. I see a lot of- For you, it's also about functionality. It's not just- about functionalities. Yeah. Yeah. But all the like 20 somethings that are out on the lake that wake surf, they, I see full behinds. Like they are, it is full mooning. Good for them. And I'm like, wow, (laughs) that's impressive. (laughs) Like that water's Uh, cold. Well, I gave up thongs in my 20s because I was like at a cross. UTIs. And I was like, I don't think that thongs are helping my case. So I just stopped. (laughs) And I haven't had a UTI since. So interesting case study on on that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on. So anyways, if anybody has like non-matronly bathing suits that don't go up your rear end and also are not super high-waisted, then please send the info for good bathing suits because I want to know. I want more ads so I can find the perfect bathing suit. I've tried on like 30 so far just this season and have not kept any. It's a lot of returning. (laughs) I know. Remember trying them on in person? It's like, what happened to that? Well, I could do that. That is my next step (laughs) is to actually go to a store. But I'm just was convinced that I could find something online, but that is not not happening okay you'll have to update us when you find it okay today we have a guest 
Ellen Campbell. She is a psychiatric nurse practitioner and a friend of mine. I was trying to remember when we met. Don't even tell me the year, but (laughs) it's like it's been a while. Every time I see her out with friends, we have these amazing, passionate conversations about our bodies and mental health. So I knew I had to invite her to the podcast, and I'm so grateful that you said yes. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with y'all. Yeah, we're finally here. We're doing it live. The last time we hung out, I felt like there was another friend sitting with us and Ellen and I were just like riffing and she was so patient and just listening and hanging out. But you can kind of tell that, you know, her eyes started to glaze over and she's like, I don't really care about this conversation. It did not Um, tap into her passion and fire the way it did for us. No, it didn't. Okay. So can you tell us exactly what a psychiatric nurse practitioner does? Yeah. So psychiatric nurse practitioners are registered nurses that go back for graduate education, either master's or doctorate level for deeper, more extensive training in diagnostics and prescribing medicine. And so nurse practitioners exist across the spectrum of all medical specialties, but my specialty is psychiatric. So while I have some medical training in treating basic physical illness, the beef of my training has been in diagnosing and prescribing medicines to treat mental illness. I've also trained in psychotherapy too. Yeah, that's awesome. Who do you work with? Like what's your main clientele? Yeah. So I have kind of always had a passion for a child adolescent population. So right now I am a self-employed independent contractor and I'm working at a group practice in Austin and I'm working with people ages six to 25 right now treating Mm -hmm. mental illness across the spectrum. I can't think of any diagnosis that I'm not treating right now. And I also have a small subset of patients that I'm doing both med management and psychotherapy with. Awesome. I was going to say, it feels like now post COVID kids are really struggling maybe more than ever. Is that True? Or is that just something I made up in my mind? (laughs) I think post-COVID, maybe it's more obvious because we're all out in the world socializing and integrated in communities more, but things were really rough. Like when COVID hit, I was working inpatient in an inpatient psychiatric hospital facility during the pandemic, and we were seeing incredibly long wait lists for our limited number of beds in the hospital, which just increased Before COVID This Well, yes, before COVID hit, but once the pandemic hit, it's gotten really, really bad. And obviously, like the social isolation, I think, played a huge role in the uptick of mental illness and the acuity of what we were seeing. But overall, there's just been this cultural shift. And I think what I'm seeing in kids is that this generation of kids right now is so much more literate with mental health. And they're so much more comfortable talking about mental health that it's just out and open in the dialogue and in their worlds. And so it seems more prevalent because it's just part of the conversation and how they relate to and identify with themselves and each other in the world. So it's hard to say like, yes, there's definitely more and they're also more comfortable with it and talking about it more. I think back to when I was growing up. And I'm like, definitely there were people that had the roller coaster of of emotions that you see now and people probably needed help that didn't get help. But it didn't seem like there were as many people that had anxiety and depression and that sort of thing then in the 90s as there is now. So do you know if there's been a rise in the, that mental health or did were kids just better at stuffing it down? Oh, there's absolutely been a rise. I mean, there's so much data to show like increased rates of depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, suicidality, eating disorders have spiked a ton. And the world that we live in now is just such a different world. The pace is faster. The pressures and the expectations are higher when we have access to infinite information at our fingertips. (laughs) There's just kind of this social pressure to be a certain way and like 
the things that I see most in my psychotherapy patients right now is just this expectation of perfection that's really driving a lot of suffering because they're surrounded by like what you were talking about with the bathing suits, these airbrushed images and that in their little young minds, even developing adolescent minds, you perceive that as reality. And Mm -hmm. when it's what you see all the time, there's this expectation of being perfect being a savant, being famous, having it all together, being expert in your field as a teenager, which is insane. Yeah, I was going to say we have adult clients that struggle with, you know, a lot of perfectionism and inability to fail and obviously starts at this age. So Mm, definitely, definitely. So you are kind of like, I mean, I don't want to say expert, but you've been passionate on the topics of perfectionism and shame and guilt and how that all drives our lives. Where do you think that like really comes from? Is it coming from social media? Like, is that our biggest problem? That's a really good question. It definitely reinforces patterns that are developed like early in childhood. So a lot of the framework that I use to conceptualize cases and like the origin of symptoms is an interpersonal neurobiology framework. And really what that is, is attachment theory kind of extrapolated and expanded upon throughout development. Basically, interpersonal neurobiology is like built off of attachment theory and how we heal and experience ourselves in relationship to other people. So even thinking about things like shame and guilt, you can think about it dating back to a nervous system that is a young infant or toddler forming attachments with their primary caregivers. And so I don't know how deep in the science I should get here, but (laughs) go for it. (laughs) Basically we have like our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic is the accelerator. Parasympathetic is the brakes, right? So around the time that you learn to walk, in early toddlerhood is kind of around the time that you start to develop like your self-awareness and sense of self. So let's say your accelerator, your sympathetic nervous system is like really amped up. You're excited. You're moving around, exploring your environment, checking out new things. And your parent senses danger and they're like, no, stop. Then your parasympathetic brake system kicks on. Well, at this point, that child's nervous system is like having a foot on the brake and a foot on the accelerator of Mm -hmm. both at the same time. And we would call that initially a rupture, right? The child in relationship to the parent has experienced a rupture in the attachment. They were just yelled at, they were startled, they were told no. That is where shame starts to develop. Because now you start to have these thoughts of like, what I did was bad. Maybe I am bad, right? Mm -hmm. And so when the parent comes in, And they can then respond to the child and soothe them like, oh, I'm so glad you're okay. I didn't want you to do that. Like, you're fine, but I just wanted to protect you from danger. That repair is actually where we start to learn like, oh, maybe I just did something I wasn't supposed to do, but that doesn't also mean I'm a bad person. And so like kind of breaking that down, like that's really the difference between guilt and shame is guilt is I did something bad, shame is I am bad. And so when we're thinking about like how these things like develop within ourselves, we can really trace it back. It's like your primary attachment figures early in childhood. And what does your nervous system learn? Do you grow up in an environment where maybe the rupture happens, but it's not met with repair? And so you don't actually get the soothing and the regulation from another person to learn, oh, I'm not a bad person. I just did something I wasn't supposed to do. And it can become like implicit, right? It's not necessarily top of the mind understanding. It's more of that implicit way of experiencing the world that lives in our subconscious. Yeah. I mean, as an adult, I can tell you that's my constant work is because my brain does go to like, I must be bad. And so I constantly have to like, thanks for therapy for decades (laughs) to like remind my body of like, oh, no, we don't have to feel this way. 
And it, it's amazing how it is so imprinted, you know, into your nervous system and your biology and it can come up forever. But also I'm fascinated by the interconnections with how we develop that with our relationship with food and how that mm-hmm. comes into, oh, like if I eat this food, then I am bad. Or, you know, just all these behaviors around food, it gets so sticky and entwined over the years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, like if we're thinking yeah. about shame comes up in our relationships with other people and we understand it in this relational context, food is so cultural and social and the messaging that we get about food and bodies is so cultural and social. It like can really reinforce these messages of shame of the I am bad and I did bad because this world around me is reflecting that back to me, that the choices that I'm making or the way that I look or what I'm experiencing makes me a less than person. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like, and you answered this question that I had, which was, you know, where's the line between experiencing this healthy guilt or shame, you know, of like, if my toddler walks into the street, I'm going to yank his arm and say no, and he's probably going to feel some level of shame in that moment. But it sounds like the way that it's not going to be toxic is when he has that repair. Yes, absolutely. And like, in any, when we're thinking about secure attachment overall, there, the formula is the formula of thirds. We want one third of the time to be attuned, one third of the time ruptures are going to happen, and then one third of the time we're making repair. So we don't have to be perfect to be able to like have secure attachment and get it right. And like guilt, guilt can be healthy. We want to have guilt. We want to know when we've caused harm or done wrong so that we can respond to it with empathy and curiosity and repair mistakes that we've made. But the shame becomes really toxic when it's having an impact that is profound and it affects somebody's ability to hold any sense of self-worth or be able to move forward in their lives. Maybe they end up with like ruminating thoughts about feeling worthless. And so now when you think you're worthless, it's really hard to take care of yourself. Like you are a person who has worth Mm -hmm. because those feelings are so strong. And that's where we see like the toxic aspect of it creep in. I wouldn't say guilt is inherently bad. Guilt in itself can also become inappropriate. People can have undue feelings of guilt or burdensomeness that aren't really grounded in reality. And shame can have the same thing too. And the cultural messages that we get around food and bodies just reinforce that if you're not eating a certain way or looking a certain way, you're not worth it you don't have worthiness or value. Well, what's so confusing that's I think happening right now is that we have that, we have this look that people have been going for, for a while. It's not that much different from when we were kids and buying 17 magazine and things like that. It's just as in more spaces. And then now there's like a super athlete version of that model type that I think has been added to it. But what's confusing to me is that they're also getting a message of body, different body sizes. And then our environment of food and things is very much contradictory almost everywhere. So it is just, it's so confusing. I would think it's confusing as an adult And so I can't imagine what this is like for teenagers to see all these different body sizes, but there still is this one look that everybody's going for based off of social media and still regular media that's out there. And then there's not a lot in our environment that would support any of that. Not saying that I want people to try to become that healthy way. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. It's that all of our food is designed to make us not feel very good. There's not vitamins there to support our brain health. So it's just like, it's very confusing what's happening. I think what I took from what you're saying is that 
while there are messages of body size diversity being mixed in with media around this like ideal of thinness, mm-hmm. our food culture is also a confusing space. Yeah, because it's all readily, about yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. what's the most exciting thing I can drink? So you remember, you know, like uh, milkshakes that have like all these crazy toppings. And so what are the things that I can eat? And it looks beautiful on social media to share with my friends. And it has to look this certain way. So it is, it's an abundance of these foods. And the opposite is happening where it's just a whole bunch of like, cleanses and detoxes and super clean eating. It's like one or the other. You have to be in overindulgent or on this like deprivation. And that's what it feels like. And then there's not a lot of room for just living your life in between. That's such a good point. And I really think what you just said kind of tapped into one theme I've been working with a lot with my clients, which is that the messaging is confusing, right? And we're exposed to so much messaging. And depending on what your algorithm says, you're going to get a different flavor of it. Mm -hmm. And so what is your ability to tap into your intuition and your knowing space of that inner wisdom of what feels right for you? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, Sometimes at lunch, I might really want to eat pizza. But if I have a lot of clients in the afternoon, maybe that's not what's going to make me feel my best. That doesn't make eating pizza bad. But my intuition is that I'm not going to feel my best in the work that I'm doing the rest of the day if that's the choice that I make. So where is that pizza going to fit into my life so that I can acknowledge my craving and desire for it Mm -hmm. while also supporting myself and feeling my best? And like finding that balance is really tricky and it's nuanced Mm -hmm. and it requires knowing yourself And knowing that I have had pizza for lunch before and I know what I felt like after I ate it. I didn't Mm. make that choice to not eat the pizza because somebody said, you can't eat pizza for lunch. That's bad for you. Right. I didn't get that learning from that. I got the learning from my experience. And so when we can have experiences where we're really tapped in to our own well-being and sense of self and how we're feeling energetically, emotionally, mentally, physically, then we can really start to tap into more of that inner knowing and that inner wisdom and following that as our guide because the messaging is so confusing. Like it will never lead us to the right place. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think about like one, how few kids would be able to come close even teenagers to being able to do that. And then I think about the number of adults that are able to do that. Well, that's what we're teaching our adults. We are, but it's like, we got a long way to go. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but that's the nuance of why like our one-on-one sessions are not like scalable, right? Because everybody has their own circumstances, their own thoughts, their own history, traumas, et cetera. And so for them to be able to listen to themselves is like such a nuanced thing to teach. But that's like always our goal, I think, is we want you to be able to walk away without having to listening. You know, I don't want you to listen to the confusing outward advice. I want you to be able to listen to yourself and know how to make those decisions. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people come to us and in their mind, they're like, I just want you to tell me what's good or bad for me. And we're like, well, that's not really that's a question not, we can answer. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it's not that the food is good or bad for you. It's when do these foods fit in and how do I feel when I eat them? Mm-hmm. And the, my other point to this too is that, you know, Ellen said it, it takes getting to know yourself. And so when people come to us and they are so 
distressed and feeling those feelings of frustration and hopelessness about wanting to be in this other body that they're not in yet. And we kind of put the brakes on and are like, hey, before we can get there, we really got to look at where you're at right now. We got to get to know you right now. Mm -hmm. To me, that's like such a challenge because people are feeling so much discomfort. They feel this rush to want to race to becoming this other person. And we're like, well, part of that journey is noticing where you're at right now. And they don't want to do that sometimes. <laughs> so Yeah, I think that's the challenge um, is, you know, getting people to want to have that experience for themselves of knowing themselves and, you know, the ups and downs that go inside there, that discomfort of not always being happy or striving for happiness or striving for perfection. Like that is an uncomfortable place for people to be uncomfortable and they don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, that's when you know you're in the right spot, <laughs> you yes. know, raising the discomfort. So I wonder if y'all can relate to this, that like, as you get more comfortable sitting with discomfort, it's really not as bad as our lizard brains want us to think it is. It's mm -hmm. really not this real threat that has to throw us into fight, flight, freezer, fawn space. Like getting uncomfortable sometimes means just taking a pause and slowing down for 10 seconds to reground and center in like what you know to be true for yourself, what your goals are, what you really want out of whatever you're doing in that moment and kind of reconnecting and not being pulled by whatever chaos is happening in the environment or even internally that might have gotten stirred up. Mm -hmm. And I encounter that so much where I have teens that come in and whenever I'm checking in with them on the progress of the development of self-witnessing is going for them because that's what we're working on. We're teaching, I'm teaching them and we're working together on like how to practice self-witnessing in a non-judgmental and compassionate way. And the answer I hear all the time is, well, this isn't fun. And I'm like, okay, well, where did you get the message that life is always supposed to be fun and entertaining and feel good? And I think that's actually mm -hmm. where we see this influence of capitalism in the diet culture space. And even in like the health and wellness space of like everything needs to look good and feel good all the time. And that's mm -hmm. so far from the reality the of what it is to live your best life. Be yes, yeah. that's so far from the reality of what it is to be a human. And that's where we get pulled into the perfectionism space is like, that's what we're sold. Fun and yeah. comfort 100% of the time. And so then they don't know how to deal with when things don't feel good. And I think they make it mean that they're failing. It's like, oh, I'm experiencing discomfort. There must be a failure. And I've been taught that failure is the worst thing that can happen. And then, yes. you know, a lot of our clients, I call them high achieving, right? These are women that have gone to law school or, you know, are rocket scientists. Like these are people that followed the structure of go to school and get straight A's, like be your, your best self, be good. And then, you know, in the application of being a human, they experience some of these fails when learning about themselves and about food. And it just feels so terrible to them. And so we have to basically teach them how to fail safely. <laughs> In the course of our time together. Yes. And this is the neurobiology of shame work is can somebody fail and in a safe, secure, compassionate, warm relationship still be good and loved? And can you hold space for their failure with that warmth and gentleness? That's how we become resilient with shame and repair our shame is in the relational space. How do you teach clients how to fail? I think most of my clients, because they are usually teens and young adults that I'm doing this work with, and even sometimes little kids as young as seven, um, for them, it's they have to develop the willingness to take risks to actually fail. Because mm -hmm. right now they're so paralyzed in this fear space around needing to be perfect that they might not even be taking actions 
where they're truly failing because they're so afraid of the failure. Mm. And so it's developing that internal narrative that is compassionate. I love to use the framework of like, well, if your best friend was going through this, how would you talk to them or what would you say to them? Right. And it's so much easier to externalize our experience onto somebody we love than to do it to ourselves. Developing the self witnessing. When do you notice these thoughts come up that you're judging yourself for being a failure? How can you show up for yourself in those moments with that really kind, compassionate, friendly, supportive care? Just being gentle. We might even have to develop a script of like, I made a mistake and that does not mean I'm bad. I can recover from this mm-hmm. and giving them those. And then as they practice taking risks that may or may not lead to failure, then they actually get to have more experiences to reflect on where we can process like what actually was the outcome and was the fear of failure something that was happening in your mind, did it actually play out in reality? You know, so we always want to hold space for the chance that like somebody's doing better than they think. Mm-hmm. And if they did fail or make a mistake, well, let's acknowledge that they survived it. They came through, they're still whole, and they're having the courage to talk about it openly so that we can continue to work on that inner narrative. And maybe if there, it's like a skill, right? An actual skill or something that they were working on, where is their space for them to learn something new or try again or get support that they need that they didn't have that might have led to the failure or mistake in the first place? Yeah. I'm curious, is the fear of failure coming a lot more from peers or from parents because there's a lot of pressure on from parents or my guess is more from peers and that it might be documented for all of the world to see whereas like we got to live our life blissfully without documentation of most of these things that we failed at so is it that because there's like a cell phone at ready to videotape them at any time? Is that where it's mostly coming from versus from demanding parents? Yeah, you would be surprised the number of parents that I talk to that are like, I don't know where my kid got this perfectionism from because we do not put high expectations on them. We just Mm -hmm. want them to know that they are loved and that doing their best is all we care about. And so I definitely think there's an aspect of peer culture that influences Mm -hmm. it, like the immediate relationships that you have with other kids, right? Are they going to catch my failure? and post it on Snapchat. Mm -hmm. I also think that is where the social media space plays a role. And that even if you're not in direct relationship with somebody, if you're in a headspace where you're consuming content that has been curated and looks perfect, Mm -hmm. then your interpretation of the world is that is, it is that way. It is perfect and curated and airbrushed. And you're really seeing the final product and not the journey that it took somebody to get to that final product. And Mm -hmm. so that gets missed. And so it's really like peeling back the curtain and teaching kids that like what they're seeing is not reality. And it's a really hard thought space to penetrate and get into because for so many of them, that is their understanding of reality. Mm -hmm. They might not see that somebody spent two hours getting ready and took 500 pictures before they posted the one they might just see the one picture and they're like, how come when I take one picture of myself, I don't look, it's not that perfect. I don't look that full together. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have to hold space for maybe we don't actually know everything that's happening. Yeah. Maybe we're just seeing a part of it. Yeah. And again, we tell our adults that as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Like the influence of social media culture is really strong, even in high achieving, brilliant, self-determined, self-aware people. 
it really taps into that more implicit way of thinking and seeing the world where it's kind of like our scaffolding or our mental model mm-hmm. and not just our thoughts, right? It's like the framework that our thoughts sit in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. I just had <laughs> on our, I had a long car ride with my daughter this weekend. And one of the things she keeps asking me about is when can I get TikTok? When Never. can I get this? I know. <laughs> and so, and I keep, she's like, I can get it when I'm 12, right? And I'm like, God help us that it's gone by then. But I'm like, it'll just be replaced by something else. And so then somehow the conversation shifted and she told me something about, filters. I was like, well, what do you want on it? Or I don't remember what the question was. And basically she filters came up and I was like, well, what is it about the filters? She's like, well, you remember when there was like, I guess maybe it was Snapchat when we had younger cousins up in Rhode Island. And so my husband would communicate with his younger cousins and they would do all these like silly, like dogs and like all those like silly things. She was like, I want to do that. And I'm like, well, that's cute and innocent. But I also know that she sees, you know, and would see the other stuff. And I was like, what about the filters that change the way you look? Have you seen those? She was like, yeah, those were kind of weird. And I'm like, okay. I was like, but they start to feel normal because a lot of people use them. And so part of the reason, so I had to explain like why I'm, I won't, I don't feel comfortable with her getting it now. And also even when she's 12, because of what happens to developing 12-year-old minds watching all this. And I was like, middle school is hard enough. I was like, you should just focus on getting through that and not adding (laughs) Instagram and TikTok to it. I was like, because that's going to be hard enough as it is. And so if we can just get through that, you're a leg up there and we can focus on these other things later. I think it's so scary. Did you watch that Dove ad that I shared? Oh my gosh, it was... I was ugly Ugh. crying because I don't know, Ellen, if you've seen it, but it's basically this ad by Dub and they're talking about it's a real girl and they use real clips of her, you know, being an innocent child. She got her playing. phone at age 12 for her birthday. Yeah, and she then- got her phone and then she starts going on TikTok, da da da. And then you see, like, then she develops an eating disorder because she's trying to adhere to these images of perfection and then luckily there was a happy ending at the end of the video but i thought something terrible was gonna happen i was like oh no i know i was like oh my god she's gonna die but no she went to recovery and like they show her and her mom like kissing i'm like i'm gonna cry just talking about it because (laughs) obviously in real life it happens much more slowly and so to see it condensed and to see like this happy little girl go to this like really depressed like teen i was just like I was sick, you know, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, why are we allowing this as adults to even let our kids have exposure to this? Like we we had like Seventeen Magazine or like Cosmo, if you were really fancy, maybe there was, but you know, to just have this constant inundation of images that can turn you really quickly. So I guess, I don't know, Ellen, I have a question, which is like, is somebody more prone to develop disordered eating patterns versus someone else like is there actual like genetic stuff or how does that work where some people can it doesn't do that to them (laughs) that is a really good question and there's some researchers that would say like we don't know the etiology of eating disorders very well from a biological and genetic standpoint in the same way that we understand things like depression anxiety schizophrenia bipolar disorder adhd There's a lot more research in those domains that we can point to and say like, oh, here are genetic variants and biological changes. And with eating disorders, we really don't have that same thing to point to. And there are changes that we do see in the brain and body when somebody has developed an eating disorder. But when we're looking at like the origins and the predispositions for it, I mean, in like the 19th century, they would say it was like neurotic mothers that created eating disorders. And like, we we don't hold that to be true anymore. I would say the framework that I'm operating from right now is really a cultural-based framework in the development of eating disorders and that the messaging that we get 
especially if we're going to think again about shame as something that is relational and happens in relationship. You know, if we start to think I am bad, I am not worthy, I am not good enough. And the culture that we're surrounded by is fueling that messaging, then that's going to lead to development of an eating disorder in somebody who, you know, might have other vulnerabilities, but we see it in kids too that maybe come from families with secure attachment because that adolescent stage of development is really an identity formation crisis. This is when kids are figuring out who they are. This is why middle school is so brutal, is you're trying to figure out who you are, but everybody wants you to already know who you are. And so there's not a lot of forgiveness or flexibility in the peer group on Mm. being unstable in your sense Mm -hmm. of self and your identity. There's not a lot of peer group support in like figuring it out because everybody's kind of going through that identity crisis. So then you add in something like social media where the messaging is so strong. There's not people on social media aren't like, who am I? You know, questioning (laughs) themselves. They're sending a very clear message. And so you give that to somebody like a 12 year old who's brain is still developing and it's going to add in a lot of confusion and maybe reinforce some of that like, oh, well, maybe I'm not good enough and maybe these are the expectations that I need to meet to be worthy and valued and loved and seen. And that's how I'm going to find security in my identity. We really just don't know, like, who's susceptible Mm -hmm. versus others. I mean, I remember having thoughts like, hmm, I wonder if I could skip lunch today. And then lunch would come and I'd be like, nah. Like, (laughs) my brain my brain is, like, (laughs) not – like, I just – I don't think for whatever reason that that's not where my development went. And even though I was around people who were going through it and I was like, huh, like, some of it was curiosity and wondering, like, could I do that? And other parts – was judgment. So I don't know. It's just interesting to see like if we looked at the number of girls on TikTok right now and like the numbers of disordered eating, like, I don't know. It's like, there's got to be some way to study that. But of course. I mean, there are definitely populations that are going to have increased vulnerabilities. Like if you're a young child who's in an athletic sport, like gymnastics or Mm -hmm. dance that really values and places a lot of emphasis on your body shape Mm -hmm. as part of the tool for your craft, you might be more vulnerable. If you experience maybe physical or emotional or sexual trauma in your youth and become really disconnected from your body and maybe develop a lot of negative feelings towards your body because your body hasn't been a safe place to live, that's an increased vulnerability. There's also something that really interesting that happens specifically in restrictive eating disorders where if you drop below a certain threshold for your body size, so let's say your weight drops or your overall body fat percentage drops a certain amount, not eating actually leads to brain changes that reinforce the choice of not eating. And so you, pe- these people start to derive some kind of pleasure from not eating. and Because it's like to- a survival. It's like, oh, we got to figure out how to survive under this condition. Exactly. It's like the caveman brain of the eating mm-hmm. disorder. Because your brain is so amazing at keeping you alive. And that's like, even though our brains are really complex and dynamic, that's the root function is survival. And so we see changes in restrictive eating disorders. So let's say somebody experiences depression and they lose their appetite secondary to their depression. Maybe their weight drops. And maybe now from a biological standpoint, they are set up to have a harder time feeding themselves Mm -hmm. because their brain and their physiology have adapted to this new low weight. And there are consequences that come with that. Like your thoughts aren't as flexible. It's harder to learn or be adaptive. You're going to have a harder time regulating your emotions. Obviously, you might have compromised health (laughs) Um, and your mortality rates go up. So there's like a lot of things that happen at a lower body weight. 
but that lower body weight can also be self-reinforcing in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's but interesting. I, I don't think I've ever thought about that way or knew that because it's not always in the quest to be a certain shape or size. It's like your disordered eating could be like a byproduct of another mental health issue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where eating can be so complex is when we're treating other things. I mean, especially even things like substance use disorders, some people will take, you know, a harm reduction approach and some people will take an abstinence only approach, but we can't Mm -hmm. avoid eating and food. It's essential and we need it. And there's so many aspects of it in our lives that aren't just for survival. Like food is cultural, food is social, food can be a source of pleasure and joy. And so it's got this much more complex and nuanced role in our lives that when the relationship with food becomes disordered, repairing it requires a lot. It's a slow process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why we typically we don't take anyone with an active disorder because it's just, that's outside of our mm-hmm. zone of wheelhouse. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. We, I do want to kind of move into this next topic cause we're running out of time, but, um, you know, you had also, and I think it's still on topic, but just more just like you had said that you are, you know, feeling a lot of interest in, about the importance of community building. And so can you just speak to that and how that might also be supportive of our relationship with food in the long term? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. Well, I think the social media conversation we've been having is really kind of segues into why I think community is important. And if we think about social media and the people that are in our social spheres online, that's a scent, that's a form of community, right? And so when we're thinking about healing our body image, our relationship to ourselves, our intuition, our shame, building communities in real life is going to be that healing space where we're able to have it reflected back to us that we are good and worthy and important and loved as our flawed, imperfect human selves. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be in those relationships with other people where we really find that place of healing. It doesn't happen in isolation. Somebody who hates themselves and hates their body isn't going to wake up one day and say, oh, I changed my mind. Right. It's going to happen in community and in relationship. Mm-hmm. Beth is a huge fan of communities and pre-COVID, <laughs> she's like, Try- I tried so hard to create a community, but it's hard because it feels like people want to be in community and silo themselves at the same time. And so it's such a a strange dynamic. I have to be with people, not just with my family. I have to be with my friends. I have to be with all sorts of things because if I don't, my brain does go into the crazy place. And so I need to have a wide variety of people that I know and trust to be like, my brain's not crazy, right? Like, (laughs) please help me talk through some of these things that are coming up that if left to myself, I will begin to really believe them and go down into a place. And so I find so much joy in being with people to talk about my amazing things and my heart things. And yeah, it's, it's Mm -hmm. crucial for me. And so I'm like, I want that for people. And I know how important it is for us as humans to be in community and we are losing that community. So well, Even though it seems very- like we're around people all the time, we're <laughs> yeah. really not. Well, I remember, I mean, years ago, you were talking about how American culture, we stopped being in multi-generational homes. You know, there was like this desire to be independent. Like we don't want to live with our parents and we definitely don't want to live with our grandparents. You know, so it was like, but there's so much value to having just even the immediate family as community that our, you know, American culture, for whatever reason, we just, and maybe that's the capitalism that Ellen was mentioning Mm -hmm. earlier, right? Yes, a hundred percent. I mean, capitalist culture is a very individual culture of Mm -hmm. gain your success, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make your money, make your mark. And it is not about community in any way, shape or form. And even like the idea of mutual aid is really Mm anti-capitalist. 
Yeah. And I mean, think about how many people you know through your client base that struggle with perfectionism and also really struggle to receive support or allow help in their mm-hmm. lives in any way or oh, to yeah. lean on somebody or to rest. Like these concepts are so antithetical to capitalism and like Beth, you were making such a good point about people wanting community, but also wanting to be siloed. And it's so hard because maybe the people that you feel in community with are a 20, 25 minute drive away and your work schedules don't align and your extracurricular activities aren't shared. And so carving out the space in your schedule to be in community with other people feels like another task or obligation or to-do list. And it's not just woven in where you share a neighborhood, a school, a, you know, art center, a community garden, like that's Mm -hmm. just not it. And so it requires a lot more effort to build community in those ways. Definitely does for sure. It requires effort. And I, I feel like for me, I've had to do a lot of like healing or coaching on it because I initially will get that. There's like a lot of memes of like, I hope my friend cancels because I really don't want to go out. And it is kind of this whole mental workup. It's like you make the plan, you know, on Friday, you're going to go do this thing. And all week you're like, okay, I'm looking forward to this. But then when the moment comes, you're like, oh, like I'm tired. I don't know if I want to do this. And I have to have a lot of like self chat about remembering my values of I do need to see my friends. I do like I know that once I'm there and I'm laughing and having a good time, like this is what fills my cup. And if I put this off, it's not going to feel good. And there's there's almost some level of discomfort that I have to hold space for and acknowledge and work through every time I go do anything. (laughs) And I didn't know I knew that I was doing that before. But really, I feel like you know, I always identified as an introvert. I really crushed COVID times. I just got to like sit on the couch and not talk to anybody. But I learned in that moment how I do really, I do value being around people and I do value my connections and my friendships, but it also does take effort. And so for me, it is taking the effort of planning and taking the effort of getting through that discomfort and going out. But like, if I don't have that, especially now more than ever as a mom, because I've lost so many freedoms and abilities just to like on the last minute, be like, Hey, I'm going out to eat with a friend. Like that doesn't really exist for me as much right now with a small child. I'm hoping that someday it comes back. It does change. Um, (laughs) You know, but, and, and when, when y'all were talking about receiving help, like I was like tearing up because that was the biggest challenge postpartum for me. It feels so uncomfortable to ask for help. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's what community is, right? And I just keep having these images in my mind. It's literally not something I've done in a while, but I keep having these images of like, what would it be like to pivot my plans instead of going out to dinner to invite my friend to my couch? And why don't I invite my friends to my couch? And we can just like eat snacks and be under a blanket together. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds awesome. Sometimes it's amazing. And like I, I, I still want I, the connection, and like I'm so much less inclined to ask for that. Mm. Yeah, I'm like yeah. I'll come to your couch. <laughs> I know I was <laughs> sending. I sent a message to my best friend who lives up north, which feels like another planet to me. I'm like, okay, I got to cross the river. I definitely got to go well above some of those Mopac exits. I got to, okay. Yeah, it takes an hour. It's not that long, really. No, it does take an hour during rush hour. Yeah, during rush hour, 100%. But I was like, I just want to go... Run, I want you to come in my car with me and we're going to go to CVS and we got to go to Target and we got to go run all of our errands. And we're going to chit chat along the way. And then I saw a meme right after I told her that I was like, I just want you to come run errands with me so I could talk to you. That is like about like being friends and like being back, like you want to be back in high school where hanging out was your friend coming over to watch you clean your room so you can go do something else. But that hanging out in your room was a main part of it. And then I'm like, yes. Yeah. I think that's why as an adult, I love like a girl's weekend or a trip because it's not about like, oh, going to that one nice restaurant. It's Mm -hmm. like the in-between points. It's just like the sitting on the plane together or the car rides to the things. It's just like that quality time is so valuable. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's got me thinking just to some of the themes we've been talking about today, but like there's so much intimacy in those moments of like running errands with somebody that you really have to be able to tolerate the discomfort of any shame that might arise. Are they going to judge my brand of toothpaste or like, what if my house isn't perfectly clean? What if they get dog hair from my blanket that's on the couch? Oh no, I've mm-hmm. got trash in my car, right? Like it's all these things. There's it just requires like Oh, so I much definitely more. have car shame. Yeah, there's just <laughs> exactly like, <laughs> I'm like you don't want to come into my car because it's like oh, I kind of live here yeah. sometimes and it's not that clean. And those yeah, like I- in-between moments that aren't the big events can be so much more intimate to really let mm-hmm. somebody in that it requires a vulnerability to really be seen. And gosh, it feels so good when we can really be seen. Yeah. Yeah. We have a good friend, a mutual friend, Jessica, from culinary school. She was like, I would watch paint dry with you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yes, let's please. Can we just go sit in a room and watch paint dry? That's all we need. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so. but it's, to me, that's the opposite of social media. Because yeah. even though we're being seen, we're putting our best foot forward, right? So it's like, I'm only showing you this one 2D version of me. And then they also don't really know me versus like, yeah, come with me to CVS. Let's see what happens. <laughs> it's like a very <laughs> different experience. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, how do we get people to do the do? You know, I don't know. It's just, I think a lot of the work that I do offer with coaching and I'm sure Beth experiences this too with our clients is like, when we talk about their relationship with food, we are looking at their whole life and where are you extracting pleasure and joy in your life? if not from food as, you know, like when food is your only joy, that's not a healthy relationship with it. So how do we manage the rest of our life? Like, what are we doing? You know, I have clients that are like, well, I do want to go out. Like I want to go out with my friends or I want to go do this thing or I want to start dating, but I can't do any of those things until my, my body is different. And we're like, oh, no, that's not how that works. Like, you actually have to go do the things (laughs) first. Yes, exactly. Um, And that's where you get the feedback from your experience that you are exactly good enough just as you are right now in this moment. And it communicates mm -hmm. that messaging back to your brain of like, oh, I can do this. Oh, I can go out. Because the avoidance of it just generates more anxiety Mm-hmm. And more, you know, desires for perfectionism and like the unattainable. Yeah, I'm so What's glad. your like utopia, Ellen? <laughs> oh gosh. I was a summer camp kid growing up. Like I went to summer camp. I'm still like bestest friends with some of my summer camp buddies from gosh, almost 25 years ago. And I just think about that camp culture a lot. There's there for me growing up, it was so much time outside, in nature, in community with other people. There was so much opportunity for spontaneity. I felt like there was a real focus on pleasure, joy, silliness, fun, recreation. But also we had community culture and rules and rituals and things that we shared with each other. And, you know, I have these visions of just that, but in adulthood, right? Like Mm -hmm. where, you know, maybe me and my crew have our houses spread out over a big property of acreage. We get time in nature. We can share some of the responsibilities of daily living that burden us all so that we can rotate. We don't all have to be responsible for our own things all the time. We can Mm -hmm. just be around each other for those opportunities for spontaneity and joy and fun and also having like our shared culture and rituals with each other of things that we do to like celebrate occasions and the passage of time and the changing of seasons or whatever it is. But like beyond my little scope is like, I would love to live in a world with less violence and oppression where that safety feels accessible for more people. Do you think that there's a country that already exists that offers this? I 
don't only because like, should I, I think... move to Finland or like, where are we going? Yeah. Like, that I... New York times article about Finland being, <laughs> is it, are they really the happiest people? It was a very interesting <laughs> article. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Like maybe they're happy, but do systems of violence and oppression still exist within those cultures? I mean, like capitalism and colonialism are pervasive and I feel like have touched every corner of the globe And I'm just really conscious of how that can be internalized. And so even if somebody's, you know, not living on a street where bombs are being blown up, like, are they safe in their body size, in their religion, in their gender identity, in their sexuality, um, to be free, to be who they are? Yeah. Yeah. I'll join your cult. Yeah. (laughs) She's not, doesn't Dolly, she's Let's asking go. for a lot of money. Yeah. I don't think it's a cult. No, you just gotta like come. You gotta not, do your share of work. Yeah, and then exactly. That's it. Like, yeah. Bring, as long as she's like, doing her share, yes. then it's not a cult. Well, she's like, residing over us and making us feel guilty about our <laughs> place. Then it's a cult. Well, I would say like one of my, one of my mentors in working with eating disorder patients said something that's really resonated with me because we were talking about burnout and like how to not get burnt out. And what they said was everybody just has to do their right amount. And if everybody does their right amount, then that contributes to bigger change overall. Like as individuals, we do not have to be responsible for systemic overhaul. But if every individual can do just their right amount, that they're capable of, then that's enough. Which I want to offer in a household of two adults with children, even if you are doing your share, it still like doesn't seem like enough, which is why we need help. Yeah. <laughs> you but know, there's always like, we like- just cannot do it. Two people and a, a kid or two, you know, maybe emptying the dishwasher. It's not enough. Like we need more. We need help. We need help. Like we're I mean, that's why it's like, oh, we have daycare. I guess that's like that is a huge help. But it's like, what else? You gotta and pay for people? that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because we're not in yeah. community with each other where that's shared cooperative living. Yeah. Well, we could talk for three more hours. We're gonna <laughs> have to bring it to a close. Is there anything that we missed that you wanted to use your voice to mention? Oh, I think this is a lovely conversation and I appreciate y'all listening and letting me go on my tangents and rambles. I get so excited to talk about this kind of stuff and it just jazzes me to be in community with people like y'all who are also trying to live this life and do this work and help others find it for themselves. Thank you. Thank you for being a therapist. To teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> and I might I add, you also like dress in a way that's very like approachable to them. I've seen you in your office. You wear yeah. cool shoes, you wear cool clothes. And so <laughs> it makes you probably very relatable to them. Ellen so. is very cool. She's the coolest. <laughs> Y'all are so funny. Well, I just feel like I got to give a plug to my friend Gab because, like, I literally just hired her to help me edit my wardrobe. So with like the specific goal of how do I look cool enough so that teenagers want to tell me their secrets and their parents also trust me. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good yeah. point. You're like, I got to look professional enough, but not too stuffy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I think you're doing a good job. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I sure hope we gave you something new to think about today and helped you take one more step on your path to freeing yourself from diet culture. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram at path underscore nutrition. We'd love to see you inside our interactive online course called Foundations. Again, go to pathnutrition.com backslash foundations to learn more and sign up today. Bye. Bye.